we've been going through this series on Ephesians of becoming who we are. It's about becoming who we are. And that's because in the first half of the book of Ephesians, which we actually just finished, that uh, it talks about in the first three chapters all that Christ has done for us in the gospel. What, who God is, what he's done, and then now it talks about what, how we live in light of that. The first, chapters 4 through 6. So it's about who God is, what he has done, and then all right, how we respond to that. Now how we live in light of the gospel. It's the truths of the gospel and then living in light of those truths, what Christ has done for us. And so we just get in first here, in these first few verses, we're talking about God's love, the love of Christ, how it is just this all-surpassing nature last week. And now we're talking about, all right, how do we live that out? That Jesus loved us, he died for us, that reality, and now how do we live out that reality? And he talks about that. It's as if it's, it's been talking about our horizontal relation, excuse me, our vertical relationship with the Lord. And now it says, all right, you bend that now to horizontally to that expands to love for others, to love for others. And specifically, he's talking about, in this section, your relationship with the church, with other brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in the local church. Let's look together, verses 1 through 2. 1 through 2. says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So the first point that I believe Paul is wanting to make is that we're supposed to walk in love. Walk in love. He says, live worthy of your calling. He requests this encouragement. He's saying, all right, live up to your calling in Christ. And why? Because, he says, all right, as a prisoner to the Lord. I encourage you this. Because Paul right there, he's encouraging them. It has weight and authority. He's an apostle, and he's in prison in Rome. He's writing this from being in Rome. He's under house arrest there, and he says, all right, hey, I'm in chains for the gospel. I'm trying to live this out. Yes, yes. I'm, trying, I'm living this out. This is part of living this out. Walking in love, walking in unity, living out the calling of the gospel. And so he says, it adds, this adds weight, it adds authority to it, that Paul is living out his calling. He's fighting for unity and brotherly love. He's living out the truth and principles of the gospel there in prison. Verse 2. So he encourages them to live out your calling. All right, this is how you do that. You do that. By how do you walk in love? With all humility. Uh, Isaiah, Genesis, can you guys help me out with this? Hazel, can you say, with all humility? With all humility. Hazel, Isaiah, come on, help me out. Man, all right, I see how it is. All right, what about the rest of you guys? With all humility. <laughs> no one's, no one's, it's all right. 
So he says, with all humility, there you go, Zadie, with all humility. So our culture and our icons today, they promote pride. They promote trusting in oneself, self-centeredness, puffing up ourselves, not in humility. C.S. Lewis, uh, who uh, Jimmy, Jimmy likes, uh, I have a little bit of him today for us. He was just so good on this. Um, he says this. He says this about pride. He says, nearly all those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. Far more the result of pride. So many of the evil, all the evils that we see in the world are rooted in pride, selfishness self-centeredness. C.S. Lewis talks about this also in uh, his children's book that he read that most of you are pretty familiar with, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. And Peter is in there, and Peter's talking to Aslan about how he feels unqualified to the leadership. He feels unqualified in his leadership. And Aslan then tells him, he says basically, because this is actually a part of what qualifies you to be king, Peter. That you feel unqualified, you feel unready. It's the humility there that you have that actually qualifies you to actually step up and be a leader, to be a good king. Because you're not consumed with pride and think you're so amazing, even though you're really not. And this is the kind of attitude that Jesus says that we need to take with people and with our brothers and sisters. Luke 20 2 says this in verses 24. There's a dispute that rises among Jesus' disciples. Um, and this happens among us, right? Or at least in our hearts. And this happens with pastors. And um, a dispute rises among them. The Bible says that it sees who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Right? So they're like, hey, you know, Peter's like, you know, James. My church is going to be bigger than your church eventually. It's like, you know what? John's like, you know what, man? I'm the, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves, all right? You know? And they go back and forth about who's the greatest? Who's the best disciple of Jesus? And Jesus says like this. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that, he says. Don't be puffed up with pride. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at table or the one who serves? The one who's at table, obviously. But is it not the one who is at the table? That's me. But I'm among you as one who serves. I'm one you who serves. He was the one who wiped the feet of the disciples, right? Who washed their feet. Who served them day in and day out. And C.S. Lewis says that there's this test, this good test for us of how we can live that out too in our lives to know if we are getting uh, spiritually prideful spiritually prideful. Whenever we find that our religious life, he says, is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else. I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. 
The real text, test of being in the presence of God is that either you forget yourself or you altogether see yourself as small, dirty object. And it's better, he says, to forget about yourself altogether. Basically, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. According to the Bible, meekness is restrained strength. Suddenly, Matthew 5, 5 makes a whole lot more sense about humility. He says, blessed are the meek, which is just a synonym for humility. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who restrain their strength. They don't, they don't put their will over others, but love others, are humble. And remember, it's God who exalts the humble, he says. He exalts the humble. So how do we walk in love? We, with all humility. We also walk in it with all gentleness, he says, in verse 2. With all gentleness. Maybe a good definition of gentleness would be a sensitivity of disposition and kindness of behavior founded on the strength prompted by love. So because we love others, we want to be gentle toward them. And it's actually a strength. It's a disposition of kindness toward them, sensitivity toward them. And is there not a more overlooked quality today? When's the last time you heard people talk about the virtue of gentleness, right? That you should be gentle. But this is Jesus. Jesus used this to describe himself. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11:29. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Why is Jesus' yoke so good for us, so freeing, so full of grace, that restful? It's because Jesus is gentle. He's gentle. It's, it's easy to be angry. It's easy to want to people to think you're impressive, to be powerful. For easy to get people to try to fear you. But it's incredibly difficult to be a gentle person. It's incredibly difficult. You have to restrain your strength. Right? That's part of humility. I was reading in Proverbs actually this morning. There's this proverb that says, A gentle tongue is like a gentle tongue breaks bones. A gentle tongue breaks bones bones. What the proverb is saying, what Solomon is saying is that a gentle tongue is so powerful in the life of other individuals. It's so powerful, more than we think, that we can persuade people by love. We can love people well by that. It says also in Proverbs how uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Have you ever been with someone that just explodes in anger? Or when someone gets really angry, they're just uncontrollable, right? uncontrollable but <laughs> but a gentle answer to them Solomon says all right even to them a gentle answer you can turn them away from their anger that's power that's powerful so we walk in gentleness which is a fruit by the way of the Holy Spirit all right we also walk with patience another fruit of the Holy Spirit how do we walk in love we walk by patience he says verse 2 Patience implies suffering, enduring, waiting. We don't like to be patient, right? Who likes to wait in line? Who likes to wait like, all right, God, I was supposed to get that new career 
like a year ago, all right? God, I was supposed to get, you know, that new thing in my life a long time ago. Like, God, why aren't you show, showing up in my life now? And how much more with people, right? Are we like that? We're impatient. I know, I myself could be like this. Patience implies suffering, enduring, waiting, as a determination of will, not simply under necessity. So you're not just, all right, I have to wait for this, but it's you're willfully being patient. You're willfully trusting God, his sovereignty. You're willfully trusting that God is good, so you're patient. The Bible also can translate it or use words, the same word in Hebrew or Greek, as steadfast endurance or long-suffering or to bear with, to bear under. There's this beautiful Greek word, it, it describes this patience, steadfast endurance, it's hupomone. He gets at that. And I think this is really good in this, our context, where today we, we have this attitude where some people, all right, if you keep on bothering me and my relationship with you and just, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna block you. I'll block you in an atmosphere of cancel culture. There's no patience. In an age of where we try to justify our outrage toward people who are different than us, different religiously, different politically, we don't walk in patience. How much more also we don't walk in patience toward those in the church, right? During COVID, did people walk in patience toward one another? No. Churches were decimated. People would leave, oh, over different issues and ideologies. I'm not saying that truth doesn't matter, but where was the patience and love in that? Just because someone wrongs you, and maybe you've, each one of us, we've turned the cheek a few times to a person, doesn't mean you give up on the relationship. It means persevering and sticking out with people. Peter asked about this. He's like, Jesus, man, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times is good, right? Man, I've forgiven him seven times, right? He thought he was being holy. But Jesus says, you know what? Seven times, 77 times, Peter. That's good. How many, that's how many times you forgive. And this patience is strongly correlated with what? The unconditional love of God, right? The steadfast sort of love that God has toward us. Again, all right, how do we love? How do we walk in love with people? He says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. How often does anger get the best of us, right? Toward a fellow brother or sister. How often are we not bearing, but instead we're getting fed up with someone? We give someone the silent treatment. But we instead encourages us to bear with one another in love. To forgive one another. Proverbs also says it's a glory to overlook an offense. It's a glory to overlook an offense. Man, I've been convicted over that in the last five, ten years. It's a glory to overlook an offense. Uh, there's this one pastor, Rob Reno. He works with uh, families. He works with marriages. And he's noted... Um, especially in talking to couples, how we treat our boss is often a lot better than we treat our spouse or the people closest to us. 
Think about this. If you treated your boss the way you treated your spouse or your roommate, you'd be out of a job, right? You'd be out of a job in a day or two. If you treated your boss like how you treat your spouse, the people closest to you in your life. And isn't this, this maxim true? That the people closest to us hurt us the most, right? And so we must forgive. Because it goes both ways. We also hurt them. So we bear one another love. We have to ask ourselves some, some tough questions as we do that. We have to ask ourselves, all right, do we just act kindly to someone? But really, is our heart there? Does our heart love them? Do we actually love and care for someone from the heart? Do we wish them the best? Or do we just tolerate them? Do we just instead inwardly judge and our bitter hearts just simmer with hatred? This is the point that Paul is trying to make. He's saying that Christians, he encourages the church here, the church in Ephesus. The local church is the context. He's encouraging them that as their family, they're living out life together, to keep unity with other Christians, with their brothers and sisters, since God has already made them one. He's already made them unified. This is what he's been talking about in the last three chapters. And he needs to encourage them that because all relationships, the proclivity of all relationships is toward disintegration, is toward bickering, toward anger and dissension. He says to make every effort. Verse 2, he says, So with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, live as you are called. Do everything in your power to do that. Make every effort to do that. Have you tried to make peace with people in your life? to talk to them. I remember there was this uh, woman that I worked with. She was a volunteer and she was a member of my church. The uh, first church I served at as a, I was serving as a youth minister. And I hurt her in many ways. Some of it um, was um, just her, her thinking, um, her misunderstanding of me. Um, and some of it was, was real genuine hurt, the w- way that I had hurt her. She was, uh, we were just people that we, we uh, butted heads a lot. And I remember that we, we finally, we, we had this little bit of a falling out together. And we ended up um, um, stopping to talk to one another. And I remember that I just, I didn't. I really regret how I approached that situation and that relationship because I didn't make every effort for the bond of peace. I should have gone to her and owned up for my wrong in the situation. That I I didn't bear with her in love. I wasn't gentle and patient toward her. You see, there are people that are always that are difficult to love in our lives. But there are people that I wish I would have tried to live more peaceably, up, make every effort to live in harmony with them, Paul says. And that's the calling to which we've been called. He talks about in verse 1. That's the calling to that which we've been called. 
Because again, naturally speaking, our relationships, they go into disintegration. He's made us one in Christ, but they tend to be fractured, self-centered. We do this. Like going back to COVID again, uh, right at the beginning, people were freaking out and, oh no, there's this toilet paper shortage. And so, all right, instead of getting what I need, or maybe a little extra of what I need, all right, let me go and take all this toilet paper and people started stockpiling. How self-centered, right? And so then there's this huge shortage because, all right, there are some people who just took all the toilet paper, right? That's pride, that's self-centeredness. See, and the gospel calls us to something different. It calls us that we can't look to our own strength to do it, but to give up and let Christ's love, his gospel, flow through us, grace alone. The only way we can live a life worthy of the gospel that he's talking about here is to realize that it is unworthy in our own power and to look to him who was worthy, who is worthy. How can we be one in Christ? Walk in love, Paul says. Second point that Paul makes is to keep the unity, to keep the unity. We see that in verses 3 through 6. Look with me there. Verses 3 through 6, he says, eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he goes into this, and he kind of goes back and reminds him, all right, theologically, all right, this is true. It's like the first three chapters of it, all right, because these realities, now you're supposed to live this out. He reminds them, be eager to maintain the spirit and the bond of peace. He reminds them of this, there's one body. This body he's talking about is the body of Jesus Christ. That's us. That's all people's church. That's the different local churches. That's the global church of Christ, the universal church, the big C church, of all true believers from all times. There's one body, one body one body. He says there's one spirit, one spirit that was poured out onto the church. That's what gave birth to the church in Acts 2, the spirit. And the spirit is inside every believer, God with us. And we see here that there's this start of this Trinitarian formula. We see the spirit, there's a Lord, he's about to say, and then there's a father, Father God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says there's one hope. We have a final salvation, a resurrection and judgment. There's one hope. He says there's one Lord. We get from the Trinity. Jesus Christ, one Lord. He's our Lord. He's the one Lord of his church. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the ultimate shepherd and pastor of his church. And there's one faith. There's one faith in the work of Christ, in the word of God, in Jesus' work, not our work. One faith. There's one baptism. 
For those who are believers in Christ, we're baptized into Christ. It's an outward sign of the inner spiritual reality that has happened in our lives, that we have been reborn again. There's one baptism. And then he says, lastly, there's one God and Father of all. Bring that picture of the Trinity all together. There's one God and one Father. We have one Father. So these realities of our oneness, of our unity in Christ he's talking about here, these are the realities that God has already accomplished. And so this series here, Becoming Who You Are, Becoming What You Are, that, all right, he says you have been made one. You're one in Jesus, and you're one together as a body in Jesus. Become what you are. Act out this miracle. This miracle has already been done. You've been made one with God. You've been made one as a body. Now you need to act out what you are. It's like, um, I thought, uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, sports movies, uh, Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, it takes place just after... Um, the civil rights movement and laws were changed in the country and suddenly this this small um, southern town now is being integrated Uh, there are schools there are different schools that blacks and whites went to and now they're being integrated and this was a miracle right nothing that their parents would have thought possible or dreamed of earlier in their lifetimes as they grew up it was a miracle Blacks and whites are now together. They're integrated in a school. We, there's a miracle. We have been made one with Christ. Sinful, dirty us. We've been made one with Christ. And we've made, been one with others. But now, going back to the movie, and remember the Titans, now they've got to, the, the school is now integrated. All right, And guess what? There's racism. Some of the blacks don't like this. The whites don't like this. And now they've got to act out. They've been put together, and now they've got to act out the miracle. Right? And that, that uh, story is, uh, is about all right, how, they, how they acted out, you know, with the help of Denzel Washington and, uh, <laughs> um, and play some amazing football then. All right? But this is what Paul is trying to get at. This reality of our corporate unity in Jesus. So he names these common beliefs that we have, this oneness that we have. So we have to ask ourselves some some tough questions, I think, that this oneness then asks of us, of how we can act it out together with, with one another, how we relate to one another. When we encounter the anger in our lives, which we're going to, you know, church life is messy, and relationships with other Christians is messy. But we can ask ourselves, all right, why, why am I angry about this? Maybe when we see in our heart there's unforgiveness there. Why is there unforgiveness? Why am I impatient about this? Why do I act out a certain way, but then my heart is like this? Why am I insincere? Why am I harsh toward people? And we can always ask ourselves, and and it's easy to take a cop-out way of saying, all right, but there's this really tough person over there, and they did this to me, and they hurt me, and they did that. It's because someone did something to me. You don't don't know, man, you don't know, Jonathan, you don't know how how they treat me. 
But I ask, we need to ask ourselves, is that how God is with us? Does he just treat us how we treat him? See, if we look at how we're doing, we can be pretty discouraged. Our eyes need to focus on Christ and he, who he is and how he loves us. You see, the love of Christ for us is a lot like this story. I heard this story from a, a man last Sunday. He told me about a, a person that uh, he had uh, dated, I think, much earlier in life. He's now uh, married and with four kids and, um, and friends with this, this woman and uh, gotten to know her a little bit and her husband. And she's married to a man who's a, who's a paraplegic. He has no arms, no legs. And he was telling me, he's like, her whole life is one of selfless service. Think about that. Taking care of this man. Anything he wants or needs to do, she's got to be there to help him with it, right? And not only that, not only then can they have this wonderful Christian marriage, and it works out together, right? But they decided that they're going to adopt two kids. And so they adopted two kids. So she is this amazing picture of Christ's love for us. Everything, she has to take care of everything for him. But not only that, by two adopted kids. How difficult is that in and of itself? But isn't that Christ to every one of us? He keeps on giving and giving to us when we just sometimes take from him. We come to him impatient. Why aren't you working this way in my life? But instead, he's just patient toward us. We come to him with our anger, and he's compassionate. We're greedy, but he's generous. We are harsh over and over again, but he's only gentle. We come to him puffed up, but he responds to us in humility. We come with hearts full of hate, but he responds only in love. Look at Christ, my friends who gave everything for you, and keep on giving. By the power of the Spirit, you can give and love one another. We can love. We, I always send us out in a blessing. We're going to do that later. But I say, all right, you can give. You can love because Christ first loved you. You can give it all because he gave all for you. He made the church one. He died and rose again so his church could be one. One spirit, Christ is Lord. God is Father of all. So lastly, I want to remind us, Paul reminds us of this truth that's already a reality. He's already made us one. So we need to live that out. See, the central message of the Bible isn't just, all right, hey, just try harder. Just try harder to love one another. No. Just do more. Just try. No, it's already been done in Jesus. It's already been done in Christ. He already accomplished this unity in the body. He already gave it to us. He's already achieved this peace of the Spirit. This is the central message of the Bible. And now we just, he's done the miracle and we need to act it out. There's a victory that he already has achieved. We don't need to strive to gain peace. The gospel says done. It's already been achieved through Christ's work. Christ has already made peace between peoples. 
even between the Jews and Gentiles we talked about a few weeks ago, between all races. Christians are encouraged here in this passage to live out and keep a unity with other brothers and sisters in the local church that's already been made one in Christ. He encourages us to walk in love, to keep the unity, to walk in love, the love of Christ, a calling and a sacrifice, to keep the unity that Christ has already accomplished. Jesus died to make his people one with him and also one with their brothers and sisters. Let's pray.